Okay, welcome aboard once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you, as usual, on uh, the evening of um, December 28th from our studio, <laughs> which is to say my rent-controlled walk-up apartment in the uh, Lower East Side of Manhattan. And, uh, well, we're going to continue in the, uh, the vein, the inevitable vein that we've been in for the past few podcasts of the end game of the Trump regime. We hope it's going to be the end game anyway, and that's rather the critical point, is that we may be uh, witnessing just in the coming weeks the culminating moment of a crisis of democracy in the United States. And uh, I think that, you know, with all of this talk, from the likes of General Mike Flynn, of um, martial law, apparently even being discussed in meetings in the Oval Office, I think that, you know, the initial sense of relief and the assumption that the uh, presidential transition is going to go ahead smoothly (laughs) is finally starting to wear thin. People are finally starting to wake up and smell the coffee and understand the really dire straits that we're in and what a dangerous moment this is. And I'm going to be discussing tonight, actually, um, two books. This is going to sort of be a book review show, but on a, a very, very relevant theme. There were two books which were released this year with almost identical titles, both looking at the phenomenon of dictatorship or strongman rule. And I've read both of these books over the past couple of weeks. One is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, by the historian and culture critic and seemingly um, specialist in Italian political culture, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Hope that I am. Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, released just this year by W.W. Norton. And the other is Strong Man, singular, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy, by Kenneth C. Davis, author of the best-selling Don't Know Much About History. (laughs) The five dictators that he looks at are Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and Saddam Hussein. Uh, These are both very worthwhile books and very timely books, I would argue, both examining the uh, mechanics by which dictators come to power, maintain power, and lose power. Uh, The second one, Strong Man, singular, by Kenneth C. Davis, is also kind of problematic in some ways. Worthwhile, but problematic in ways which I'm going to discuss. I should also point out that the first one, Strong Men, by Ruth Ben-Ghiat, is more of a scholarly work, and Strong Man, by Kenneth C. Davis, more of a popular work. Uh, but I have to emphasize here that, you know, that's not really the nature of my criticism. You know, <laughs> there are plenty of... Um, 
scholarly books, which are very, very, very problematic. <laughs> and there are plenty of popular books, which are, um, you know, very well done and serious. So this uh, isn't genre snobbery on my part, okay? I've got very specific pointed criticisms of Kenneth C. Davis, which I'll be discussing. And why I think that these books are very critical reading at the moment, uh, well, is obviously, <laughs> like I say, I think we're at a culminating point of the crisis of American democracy. But there's a long-term, and this is very critical here, there's is a, is a long-term, deeper rot in American democracy, which, even if we get over this hump, ojalá, now we actually get a President Biden, is going to remain and is going to continue to cause problems. And particularly over the past uh, 10 to 20 years, I've been finding that, uh, you know, the notion of democracy, which used to just sort of be uh, a part of the general social consensus, is being questioned more and more. And there's actually been a um, convergence around both ends of the uh, political spectrum, the left and the right, around uh, antipathy to democracy and suspicion of democracy and enthusiasm for strongmen. And I think this has a lot to do with the Iraq disaster, which was launched by W. Bush and his so-called neocons. In, uh, you know, the interest of spreading freedom and democracy, supposedly. I mean, that was very much the uh, propaganda which was used, at least. And, of course, it turned into a total disaster. So I think that, you know, uh, since then, there's been a, um, a growing consensus that strongman rule or dictatorship is preferable to the risks and potential messiness of, uh, you know, quote-unquote, regime change. And it's gotten to the point where, you know, even legitimate popular movements and democratic openings have been cynically or ignorantly tarred with the broad brush of imperialist regime change conspiracies, and there's been like an outright enthusiasm for dictators. I'm seeing this most uh, clearly in the case of um, Bashar Assad in Syria, who is beloved both of, uh, you know, elements of the so-called anti-imperialist left and by, you know, the so-called paleocons, the really old-school conservatives who reject the neocons. And this is a particular point of frustration with both of these books, is that both of them barely mention Bashar Assad. And I would say that of all of the dictators and strongmen on the world stage today, he's the one who has gone the furthest in the direction of, of actually approaching Hitlerian-level crimes. Xi Jinping is arguably catching up with him fast with the mass internment of the Uyghurs, but even she has not yet crossed the line from mass internment to extermination. Bashar Assad has killed something on the order of 100,000 over the course of the past nine years of the Syrian conflict. Now, I'm not talking about battle deaths. I'm talking about the desaparecidos who lost their lives in his gulags and early on, protesters slain in massacres. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, 
has only one very veiled, oblique reference to Bashar Assad. Doesn't even invoke his full name in all of her uh, 358 pages. Disappointing. And Kenneth Davis gives Bashar Assad precisely one sentence. His final chapter, entitled Never Again, A New Generation of Monsters, provides a rather sweeping overview of dictators on the world stage since the five that he discusses, in which he gives Bashar Assad one lone sentence. In 2014, a former Syrian military photographer smuggled out thousands of photos and records documenting atrocities committed under the regime of President Bashar Assad. Okay, two sentences, forgive me. (laughs) He goes on to say, Stephen Rapp, the U.S. State Department's top war crimes official at the time, said it was, quote, solid evidence of the kind of machinery of cruel death that we haven't seen, frankly, since the Nazis, end quote. Okay, two sentences. On that point, although that point alone, I will give Kenneth Davis more creds than Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who overlooks Bashar Assad almost completely. But getting to a more central point, the real danger in books of this nature is falling into the trap of self-congratulation on the niceties of Western democracy and the notion that it can't happen here, quote-unquote, and loaning credence to the dubious notion of American exceptionalism. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe very, very strongly that democracy must be defended, even, as the Marxist put it, bourgeois democracy must be defended, but it must be defended with no illusions. It must be defended against fascism and attacks from the right, but it must be defended with no illusions. And we must also have a critique of bourgeois democracy. And this is what Marx got right, that the class nature of capitalist democracy is an internal contradiction that makes it inherently unstable, or, as he thought, ultimately doomed. But what he failed to see was the potential for fascism, which can be viewed as a mechanism for shoring up the system and sacrificing democracy for an interval to save capitalism. Now, this was certainly the role served by at least two of the dictators that Kenneth Davis discusses, Hitler and Mussolini, and uh, what, you know, revolutionaries thought in the 1930s was going to be the final crisis of capitalism, as the phrase goes, only opened up the age of dictators. And after that age passed, for a while at least, the capitalist order was preserved. And now the cycle seems to be coming round again. So, I would argue that a serious anti-fascism must have a critique of bourgeois democracy, which is why I reject the false dichotomy that the only options are a left-right populist convergence, or red-brown politics, as it's sometimes called, or, on the other hand, 
a popular front or some updated variant thereof in which progressive forces are co-opted by the Democratic Party, <clears throat> and that even while defending the limited rights that we commoners have under bourgeois democracy, our resistance must be animated by a vision of a more meaningful, popular democracy, or even one day, ojalá, a socialist democracy. And I would argue that revolutionary anarchism represents the most democratic vision of a socialist democracy. But <clears throat> to, uh, you know, uh, leave behind utopian visions and get back to the grim realities of the moment, let me, uh, let me discuss both of these books. First, I'm going to deal with the, uh, the more serious and, frankly, the superior of the two, Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present by Ruth Ben-Ghiat. All right, I'm going to start by... Uh, just saying a few words about uh, terminology, since both of these books have almost identical names. Ben Giat is using the word strongman with uh, greater rigor, I would argue, and she usefully divides the periods of um, authoritarian rule into uh, three groupings, beginning with uh, classical fascism, Mussolini and Hitler, etc., 1920s through the 1940s. Then the era of the coup d'etat the various dictators who came to power through uh, a military coup, principally during the Cold War. And uh, she doesn't happen to invoke this, but uh, Noam Chomsky, in some of his writings, has referred to the same phenomenon as sub-fascism, as opposed to classical fascism. And then finally, uh, the era of the strong men, which is, uh, as she sees it, the current era beginning around 25 years ago now, when Silvio Berlusconi came to power in Italy for the first time. She kind of uh, focuses on Berlusconi as a prototypical strongman, or wannabe strongman, aspiring strongman at least. The kind of leader who um, doesn't overthrow democracy in one fell swoop outright, as in a coup d'etat, but who... Uh, corrupts and compromises democratic institutions to the point that they uh, become irrelevant. Now, she may overstate the case a little bit. I don't think that Berlusconi was exactly a strong man. He was more of a, an aspiring strong man or a wannabe strong man who never quite made it, but uh, does provide a case study in how a uh, democracy becomes corrupt and stultified, making it vulnerable to subversion by powerful private interests and or an ambitious, um, aspiring strongman. In the case of Berlusconi, it was, uh, it was both, because he essentially uh, controlled the media, so his private empire, as well as his control of the public apparatus, was critical to his rule. And she compares this style of rule with that of uh, Mussolini, sort of the prototypical figure of um, the era of classical fascism, it also provides discussions from that era of uh, Hitler and Franco. Then moving into the era of the coup d'etat, she looks at Pinochet, Gaddafi, Mobutu, among others. And then finally, in the, uh, the age of the strongman, in which we are still living, in her view, Erdogan, Vladimir Putin, Orban of Hungary, and uh, to her credit, Donald Trump 
there is at least a brief discussion of Donald Trump in the context of him being an aspiring strongman, which is uh, really, really important, and she deserves big kudos for that. So thank you, Ruth Ben-Ghiat. In contrast, Kenneth Davis only mentions Trump very briefly, again, just a couple of lines, and uh, not talking about Trump per se, but only mentioning him, not in a discussion about Trump per se, but only mentioning him as uh, an aside in a discussion of Vladimir Putin. Just bringing him up in the context of Putin and mentioning Putin's uh, interference in the 2016 United States election without really focusing, at least not overtly, on the implications of that interference and that convergence of interest between Putin and Trump, what that means for American democracy. He only sort of hints at that, although I will acknowledge (laughs) that at one point he references um, Hitler's desire to, quote, make Germany great again, unquote, which uh, I would like to believe was a veiled reference to Trump. Another problem with uh, Kenneth Davis's book, Strong Man, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy, is that he is using the word strong man imprecisely, in contrast to Ruth Ben-Ghiad, who's using it with greater rigor. Davis is just sort of using it as a synonym for dictator. And that's really not right. I mean, it's kind of understating things to call Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin strong men. I mean, of, uh, you know, figures who are on the world stage at the moment, I would say, you know, strong men would be uh, <clears throat> clearly Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, probably Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, probably Viktor Orban in Hungary. I would say that uh, Putin in Russia has long been a strong man and is now about to make the leap <laughs> into uh, outright dictatorship. But there is a distinction there between strongman rule and outright dictatorship, which Davis is failing to make. And uh, Trump, I would say, is you know an aspiring strongman who never quite made it, but uh, we're about to see what's going to happen. As I say, the following weeks are going to be decisive. And, uh, you know, a related problem here, and this has to do more with, you know, the, uh, the fundamental failure of basic assumptions in Davis's book, is uh, that the subtitle is not quite right. Both the title and the subtitle are not right. right. Strong man, he's kind of painting with a broad brush and just using it as a synonym for dictator, and it isn't. Uh, but then his subtitle, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy, that isn't really applicable to more than two of the dictators that he discusses, of the five dictators that he discusses. I mean, you know, it was true of uh, of Mussolini and Hitler that there had been, again, uh, weak, unstable, stultified democracies, but nonetheless democracies, which they overthrew. Uh, the other three, not so much. Stalin, Mao, Saddam Hussein. I mean, apart from the, uh, you know, the interval of a few months under Kerensky in 1917, where there was an abortive effort at a bourgeois democracy, 
Russia went from, you know, czarism to Bolshevism. In China, <clears throat> Sun Yat-sen attempted to establish a bourgeois democracy. It didn't really work out. It certainly never had control of all China, or perhaps very briefly, at least in name, but certainly not for long. And finally, Iraq, you know, had been ruled by a, uh, <clears throat> by a monarchy followed by a succession of dictatorships before Saddam Hussein came to power in 1979. So, uh, inappropriate subtitle. And interestingly, Kenneth Davis, you know, also published this book, Don't Know Much About History, which was another kind of, you know, popular primer <laughs> kind of book about, you know, the basics of what we all should have learned in school, but maybe didn't. <clears throat> well, I'm beginning to think that maybe he doesn't know that much about history because <laughs> there's a few uh, glitches, shall we say, or um, oversights, at least, in this book, which bear mentioning. And uh, many of them, the reason they really bear mentioning is that many of them play into, you know, self-congratulatory consensus reality about Western bourgeois democracy. All right, I'll just start out by mentioning that, um, just by way of example, although it's not all that politically significant, but it's certainly an oversight. Um, in his discussion of uh, Mussolini, there is no mention at all of the Salo Republic. Now, I don't have a problem with, you know, giving broad stroke history, you know, giving a, a brief sweeping overview. That's useful, especially for a popular book where you're assuming that, you're, you know, your audience doesn't have basic familiarity with the subject matter. But um, that's a rather critical episode to leave out. The Solo Republic accounted for uh, the final uh, year and a half of Mussolini's rule, albeit over a um, reduced portion of Italy's territory and really as a a de facto Nazi satellite state. But to bypass it completely is um, sloppy. To go over a few other uh, errors or distortions, which are perhaps politically telling, he writes that in 1922, with the formal declaration of the USSR, the communists controlled, quote, a vast new empire that spread across Europe into Asia. Well, it wasn't really a new empire. It was really an old empire. <laughs> I mean, yes, after the, uh, the empire of the czars collapsed, Moscow lost control of Central Asia, the Caucasus, etc. And by 1922, the Bolsheviks had reconquered it. So in that sense, it was new, but that's really kind of um, misleading. Because compared to, you know, the empire of the Tsar, the Bolsheviks didn't control more territory. They controlled less territory. They inherited a pre-existing empire, and not all of it, having lost, most significantly, the Baltic republics, which were reconquered later under Stalin. But that's later, not in 1922. All right, moving on to Stalin now. He writes that in 1939, despite warnings that Germany was mobilizing its forces and that Hitler was intent upon crushing the Soviet Union, Stalin agreed to a non-aggression pact with the Nazis. Okay, now, strictly speaking, you could say that's accurate, but it becomes problematic 
because Davis doesn't mention at all Stalin's efforts over the course of the three years preceding that to build the popular front, to build the popular front with the Western democracies and form, you know, a, um, a solid block with them against Hitler and fascism. Prior to September 1939, Stalin definitely saw Hitler as an enemy. And it's when he couldn't get Britain and France and the United States on board with his uh, popular front that he cut his losses and made his deal with Hitler, precipitating the outbreak of the Second World War. And it was only in 1941 when Hitler betrayed his buddy Joe and invaded Russia that finally the Popular Front came into existence as an international force with the Western democracies on board. Rather critical history to leave out. Moving on to China, he writes, quote, During the Korean War of 1950 to 1953, the United States and China came terrifyingly close to a nuclear war. Okay, this is a very, very misleading and problematic construction because as he in fact later acknowledges, China did not have nuclear weapons at that time. China only developed the nuke in 1964, more than a decade later. So this wasn't, you know, the risk of the United States and China coming terrifyingly close to nuclear war. It was the risk of the United States nuking China, which was in fact considered during the Korean War. Truman, after having already used the nuclear bomb against Japan in 1945, considered using it again against North Korea in 1951. Okay, you may consider this nitpicking, but I think it's an important point. Quote, it was Mao's decision to send part of the People's Liberation Army to Korea in October 1950 to support North Korea in the Korean War. The United States was leading the fight to protect South Korea from communist North Korea under the authority of the United Nations. And, uh, you know, I think particularly since he's writing for uh, a readership which is basically starting from ground zero, and doesn't know much about the history. It's a little bit dangerous to refer to communist North Korea, but not to give any adjective to South Korea, because South Korea in 1950 was not a democracy. South Korea and North Korea alike were dictatorships in 1950, and the U.S. was not protecting South Korean democracy in the Korean War, but the right-wing dictatorship of Syngman Rhee. Then he writes that, quote, Mao Zedong was a ruthless leader whose policies, like Stalin's, led to the deaths of millions of Chinese people through starvation, imprisonment, torture, and execution. Well, Stalin's policies did not lead to the deaths of millions of Chinese people. Stalin's policies led to the deaths of millions of Ukrainian and Russian people. But um, I'm not just nitpicking here, because later he again makes this comparison when he discusses the famine of 1959 in the context of Mao's Great Leap Forward, comparing it to the Holodomor of 1932, Stalin's intentionally created famine in the Ukraine. Now, 
Historians generally believe today that more people died in the famine in China in 1959 than in the famine in Ukraine in 1932, but they had different causes. They were both related to you know, forced collectivization of agriculture, yes. But in Ukraine in 1932, Stalin's commissars were confiscating the grain. There wasn't any failed harvest. The grain was confiscated. It was a bureaucratically created famine and arguably an intentional genocide of the Ukrainian peasantry with political ends of doing away with a potentially disloyal chunk of the populace of the USSR. In China in 1959, in contrast, the harvest did fail. And the people who starved were the Han Chinese peasantry, who were basically Mao's base of support. So by my understanding of the history, and I have not read some of the more you know recent critical looks at the Great Leap Forward, such as Mao's Great Famine by Frank Decoder, that's still on my reading list. <clears throat> but to my understanding of the history, the Great Leap Famine was a tremendous disaster one of the worst of the 20th century, but it was not an intentional genocide. It was more a crime of hubris on Mao's part, rather than malevolence and exterminationist zeal, as I believe was the case in Stalin's intentionally instrumented Ukrainian famine. Okay, again, you may consider this nitpicking. But he writes that uh, Mao Zedong would create a rigid communist police state that permitted no dissent. And, uh, you know, I take issue with the, uh, <clears throat> the use of the phrase police state there, not because I wish to um, cover up or apologize for anything that Mao did, not whatsoever, but just because I don't think it's quite accurate. There wasn't any equivalent of the NKVD you know, Stalin's secret police, the predecessor agency of the KGB. There wasn't any equivalent of that in China under Mao. The abuses were carried out by party cadre, particularly during the Cultural Revolution, and by the army. And it was only, uh, you know, today, today you could argue that there is a kind of, in capitalist China, <laughs> there is a, uh, you know, a sort of an equivalent of the NKVD or, or the KGB in the uh, ministry of state security. But that was founded by Deng Xiaoping after Mao died. I'm not saying that it wasn't totalitarianism under Mao, but it was a different model of totalitarianism. And uh, finally, he writes uh, that um, during the Cultural Revolution, Buddhists had to worship in secret because religion was illegal in communist China. Well, no, it wasn't. I mean, that's just factually incorrect. It would be correct to say that religion was persecuted during the Cultural Revolution. Absolutely. But it is not correct to say that religion was illegal in communist China. I mean, it's just sloppy to say that. Finally, you know, some important omissions, both concerning Maoism and concerning the post-Mao order in China. No mention of the so-called Iron Rice Bowl, as it was called. Guaranteed caloric intake and social security 
for the masses in China after they finally, you know, got the tub on its bottom, so to speak, after the reckless experiments of the Great Leap Forward, which had a lot to do with Mao's real popular support, which, of course, was taken to the extreme of a fanatical personality cult during the Cultural Revolution, I readily acknowledge. And then finally, no mention of the Tiananmen Square Massacre of 1989, and no mention, even though this book just came out this year, of the mass internment of the Uyghur people of Xinjiang with perhaps a million or more, estimates as high as two million, forcibly detained in a new concentration camp system which has been established. So, you know, Davis leaves intact the, uh, you know, assumption that China started going in the right direction after Mao died, and that a move toward democracy followed the move toward free markets, which um, was a much more forgivable illusion, shall we say, 10 years ago, before Xi, uh, Xi Jinping came to power, than it is today. And finally, the last thing I'll mention, <clears throat> there are other errors I could call out, but I'll refrain, because <laughs> I'm probably already sounding like a uh, overly didactic, anal-retentive geek. But um, <clears throat> he writes at the end, in his overview, once again, of um, all of the all of the other dictators and monsters of the 20th century, he writes that the communist leaders Ho Chi Minh of Vietnam and Pol Pot of Cambodia have also been blamed for millions of deaths. And it's really unfair to lump them together. I mean, yes, Ho Chi Minh was an authoritarian leader and was responsible for plenty of crimes, but he was not one of the worst mass murderers of the 20th century as Pol Pot was. So lumping them together as, you know, responsible for millions of deaths, is really misleading. And generally, Davis's discussion at the end, where, you know, he poses the question, never again, of whether, uh, you know, the contemporary world, and particularly the contemporary Western world, is susceptible to the rise of a new strongman or dictator or monster, is uh, wholly insufficient. So, uh, you know, I recommend both these books, I do, but um, I think that the uh, the Davis one needs to be read with a, a more critical eye, and certainly it's, uh, you know, chiefly of use to beginners, whereas uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat's book is uh, a lot weightier and more sophisticated. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it's interesting in, uh, you know, uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat's vision, you know, first you had classical fascism, and then you had... Um, the period of the coup d'etat. And then for the past 20 years or so, you've had um, the era of strongmen. Well, I will just pose the question, if now, here in the United States, just having witnessed bourgeois democracy slouching towards strongman rule for the past four years, we are not now about to enter a fourth era after that of classical fascism and sub-fascism and strong men. A fourth era in which something akin to classical fascism reemerges onto the world stage. And I think you see this most clearly in the world's acceptance and blindness and denial about everything that Bashar Assad has done in Syria over the past nine years. But 
my deepest fear, just because I'm a gringo and I live in New York City, is that these chickens may be coming home to roost right here <clears throat> in the United States of America. The erstwhile leader of the free world, quote, unquote. So like I say, you know, the coming weeks leading up to January 20th are going to be a period to watch very, very, very closely. And certainly we are going to be watching it very closely. So watch this spot. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.